We are starting a brand new series today. We're going to be in Romans in chapter number 14. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I do want to ask you today, if you have a physical Bible with you, um, by the way, I'm a big fan of physical Bibles. As I've said a few times, this is my favorite one. The leather is incredible. See me afterwards, I'll let you like hold it. Uh, I like a physical Bible. If you have a physical Bible, turn to Romans chapter 14. If you do not have a physical Bible this morning, hey, no problem. Uh, we will show it on the screen, or you can open up an app in your phone um, and follow along with us. I am going to ask you today, we're not, we're not here right now to begin, but I do want to ask you today to follow along. We're going to read through this entire chapter so that we can grasp the context of what the Lord has for us from this chapter, okay? Uh, before we do jump in, I want, to, I want us to understand a couple of things about this book. Paul wrote this book. He wrote this book uh, simply called Romans. This book was written both to Jews and to Gentiles in Rome. Rome, obviously, the major, major, major city with a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different people in Rome. The gospel had been extravagantly given through Jesus to all men, both to Jews and to Gentiles. And so Paul takes a good bulk of this book and honestly a good bulk of the entire New Testament that he wrote in his epistles and letters explaining the beauty that Jesus came for his people, the Jews, and for all people, the Gentiles. That was very important in that day. So we need to understand that about this book. With multiple ethnic groups that came together in the family of God, people that didn't look the same, didn't have the same backgrounds, didn't have the same socioeconomic statuses. Uh, they were very different. You had Jews that had been raised heavy in the law. You had Gentiles that had been raised void of the law. And they were all coming together in the family of God. And there was obvious potential there for cultural differences to cause division, not only in the church, but also just in the city. I believe in 2022, I think we have seen and are seeing those things play out, that people that hold to different cultural beliefs or different political beliefs, we see division in our nation, we see division in our communities. Unfortunately, it takes tragedies sometimes, like what happened in Raleigh this past Thursday for us to come together. But Paul was dealing with this. This is nothing new. You may look at me today and say, Josh, I've never seen a more divided time in our country. And you may be right. But I'm here to tell you that division is nothing new. It's nothing new. Division has been a part of culture and a part of our society from the very beginning. And Paul spends much of his life devoted to ensuring that the gospel message of grace and of Jesus, of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, he spends much of his life devoted to that truth being accessible to all people, both those in the, from, from Jewish descent 
and those that were Gentiles, non-Jews. They call it in the New Testament, the mystery of the gospel. So with that background, understanding Paul's heart and that he wanted to clearly communicate the gospel to all people. He wanted to recognize, acknowledge the cultural differences as he presented the gospel. With that background, I want us to read through this entire chapter this morning. This series is going to be a few weeks. It's not going to be terribly long. Hopefully it's going to last us into the holidays. That's my plan. So we're going to spend some time in different areas of this, of this, this chapter, but I want us to get the chapter as a whole. So today, let's read Romans chapter 14 together and then ask the Lord to show us what he would have for us during this series. Verse 1 in chapter 14 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Context. One person esteems one day above another, probably the Jews and the Sabbath. Okay? Another esteems every day alike, probably the Gentiles, who, was, who were raised without the Sabbath teaching. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives, God's th- and gives God thanks. None of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again. I'm sorry, rose and lived again. Christ died and rose and lived again. Sorry. That he might be, be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Let me repeat that. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. 
but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or our cause to fall in our brother's way, in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. It's Paul speaking. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Man, we're going to get into some good stuff in this series. Stick with us. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of the Lord for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a, that's a chapter and a half. I believe this morning, and I will not do this to you, that I can read that that chapter three, four, five times in a row. And I believe each time you would say, oh, wow, that verse. Oh, man. Oh, wait, man, the next time through it was that verse. Whoa, like, hold up. I need to figure this out. We see in this passage, I believe, where, where some people might say we see some confusion in this passage, I believe the word that we see in this passage is the word balance in this, in this chapter. We're going to talk about that as we go in this series. But as we consider this chapter, we must come to a general grasp of what the core, non-negotiable doctrines and teachings of the, of the faith are. We must understand that the Bible has some very clear and obvious teachings that we must agree on. But then there are many other more vague concepts and teachings in Scripture that we must show flexibility on. There are those, and I've experienced this in my time in ministry, I'm 16 plus years in ministry, I've experienced people that on every topic, they believe that somebody has to be 100% right. And then if you do not, if you are not that person, then you are 100% wrong. I don't know if you've been around people like that, but it's very black and white. Uh, looking at, at doctrines of Scripture, the Sabbath. Well, if you don't hold to a traditional Sabbath, the Bible says you should, and I'm right. 
So if you don't, you're wrong and I'm right. If you don't hold to fill in the blank doctrine and teaching like I do, I'm right and you're wrong. Now those people, you know what I found about those people? They're never the ones that are wrong. The ones that believe everything is black and white, they are never wrong. They are always in the right. And the people that don't believe like them are always in the wrong. It's incredible. But we've seen in this, in this passage a couple of, I'm going to use the word illustrations that Paul gives. One is the Sabbath day. One of you esteems a day. Others don't. The other teaching was eating meat. What we believe is, is meat like offered to idols. Or I guess you would call it in that time, it had not gone through the traditional Jewish process of, of cleanliness. Some of you eat it, some of you don't. Those were the things that Paul was speaking of. Those were his illustrations in this, in this chapter. What this does tell us is that there are some things that are gray in Scripture. But then that would also tell us that there are some things that are black and white in Scripture. So we as believers must be able to differentiate between what is black and white in Scripture and what is a gray area in Scripture. Can I word it a couple of different ways for you so we can begin to comprehend this? <coughs> we must be able to differentiate between essential beliefs and non-essential beliefs. Essential versus non-essentials. Closed-handed doctrines. You will not change me in this doctrine. It is closed. I am convinced in my mind, and you will not change me. And open-handed doctrines of God... I believe this, but if you show me otherwise, if someone else believes differently, my hands are open. My hands are open. Fundamentals. These are the foundations of what we believe, and they cannot be moved, because if the foundation is moved, the whole building collapses. And the non-fundamentals, the window decorations. The paint colors, the light fixtures, the chairs. There's a difference. And may I make a couple of statements. If everything this morning, if every doctrine held the same weight, then nothing would truly matter. If every single doctrine in Scripture carried the same amount of weight, and whether or not you wore Mixed cloth in your shirt mattered the same as the blood of Jesus. Man, it would so cheapen the blood of Jesus. If everything, if everything held the same weight, then nothing holds weight. If everything is a 10 out of a 10, then nothing is a 10. Okay, if everything is an emergency, Guess what? Nothing's an emergency. 
And so when we are, when we are trying to comprehend Scripture, we are trying to look at a passage like this, a series like this, Romans chapter 14, dealing with differences. We must understand that there is a difference this morning. And this might make you a little uncomfortable. But there is a difference this morning between the black and white, essential, core, fundamental doctrines of our faith and many, many, many other teachings in Scripture where there is a lot of leeway. There's a lot of gray. So my goal today is to present to you the essentials. The black and white. The non-negotiables. The fundamental, foundational truths of Christianity. So for some of you, today is going to be very elementary. Because you're going to be like, I know that. I grew up in church. I, I believe that. And that's fine. We need to be reminded of what we believe. Number one. And number two, we need to understand that this list is only but, but yay long. And for some of us, maybe our list is like a whole lot longer and maybe we need to take a deep breath and relax. For others, maybe your list needs to grow to a biblical list and you need to know what you believe. I don't know where you're at today, but my goal today is to show you uh, what the essential core beliefs and doctrines of our faith are, our pillars of truth. Jesus, speak through your word. May we leave this today, but then in a more broad sense, this series. May we leave it with a greater understanding of who you are and how you want us to act toward one another. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The goal of this series is that Josh and Kayla can see things differently and smile and be friends and hang out and serve together and love Jesus together and serve in the same ministry together and be in the same connect group together and be comfortable with Kayla, I'm sorry, I'm just embarrassing you, seeing these things a certain way and Josh seeing these things a different way. That's the goal, is to understand how that works. How many of you understand that if you get two people in the room and you begin discussing any topic, you're not going to discuss many topics too long before you realize that you and the other person in the room have some different thoughts. Raise your hand if you agree. If you're married, you better raise your hand because you know, you know it's the truth. I thought we talked about that when we were dating. Well, sorry. Um, I thought we agreed. Well, you know, people change. Um, I wish this morning, I really do candidly speaking, I wish that I could say from this chapter, we're going to take you to the specific verse in Scripture that says here are the core essential doctrines of Christianity. And we could read that, that verse and like we could be done. Unfortunately, there's not one verse of Scripture in the Bible that says here are the fundamental doctrines of the faith that doesn't exist. So what, what we must do is we must trust a more holistic comprehension of Scripture. Understanding this book as a whole, okay? And then also the tried and true 
doctrines and faith that have been passed down from the early church all the way through uh, the history of the church and where we have arrived at today here in 2020. So we must trust those things as well as the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding as we understand the Bible as a whole. These essential doctrines we will speak of today, these are the doctrines that we stand upon. These are the doctrines that we are bold about. These are the doctrines that we don't negotiate about. These are the doctrines that draw the line in the sand of you're either a believer or you are not. You ready for them? Number one, what is the essential, black and white, core, fundamental, foundational, pillar truth that we must understand so that we can comprehend Romans 14? Number one, the Bible is infallible and sufficient. The Bible is infallible and it is sufficient. We must understand this truth. This is a non-negotiable. Listen to me this morning, church. Either this is God's word given to man and it's inspired and it's for us today and it is sufficient for everything that we have in life or it's not. This is either the greatest miracle over 1,500 years All the different authors and the different perspectives divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit coming together in one book. That is either supernatural or this is the biggest fake and fraud that's ever existed in human history. Okay, this doesn't just happen. Listen, you can't get you and your husband or your wife to agree on something. Much less 1,500 years of people from different backgrounds coming together with no technology and putting a book together. So this Bible is either supernaturally inspired of God or it is false. And a core doctrine of our faith is that we believe that the Bible is infallible and that it is sufficient. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 is the obvious verse of Scripture that speaks most plainly and clearly to this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You ever wonder why you open up the Bible or you hear someone preach, you're like, man, it just seems like about 75% of the time I'm getting my toes stepped on. You know, you ever been there? Like, man, it seems like I open my Bible, it's like, man, I do that wrong? Man, like, here's why. It's probably for doctrine, that's a positive. But it's also profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction. About 75% of the time, you're going to open up this Bible and be like, man, there's another part, area I'm struggling. Just is what it is. But the Bible we believe to be sufficient and infallible. We do not believe this Bible to contain any falsehood. If there is an area in this, in, the, in this book that we feel like is, a, uh, is contrary to another area in this book, it is not. It is a misunderstanding on our part. If we believe that there are contradictions that fall in line in this, in this book, it is because we do not fully comprehend the truth of this book. We trust it. We trust it. 
John Calvin said this. By the way, we are a church. We were talking about in our prayer huddle today. Like, I try to be a friend to a lot of different people in a lot of different circles to where I feel like I could quote John Calvin in a sermon and then I can hang out with like a Pentecostal the next day. All right, that's just me. So it is what it is. John Calvin said this, in order that true religion may shine upon us, we ought to hold that it must take its beginning from heavenly doctrine and that no one can get even the slightest taste of right and sound doctrine unless he be a pupil, a student of Scripture. What is he saying? If we're going to be pure religion, undefiled, if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, then we have to have the right doctrine. And the only way we're going to have the right doctrine is to stand firmly as a student of this book. The Bible is infallible and sufficient. In order for us to understand the gray areas, in order for us to understand the non-essentials, in order for us to understand the negotiables, we must understand the black and white. We must understand the non-negotiables. We must understand the essentials. Essential number one, the Bible is infallible and it is sufficient. Essential number two, you ready? The uniqueness and the deity of Jesus. The uniqueness and the deity of Jesus. Unique, the only human being ever in the existence of the human of human history to be born of a woman who was a virgin. You say, Josh, I know I've heard that since I was a kid in Sunday school. Wait, wait a minute. Pause. A miraculous birth. Unique to any other individual ever to exist on the face of this planet. Born to a woman who had never known a man. Born to a woman, just to make it a little scandalous. Born to a woman who had never known a man that was engaged to be married to a man. Just, wow. Unique. Unique. Jesus had a unique birth. Born of a virgin. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. 
Listen to me. You, I understand if you've grown up in church, you've been taught since you were a little kid that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. I understand that. But this morning, we must understand that that is a core foundational truth that we hold to as a foundation for our entire faith and practice. But not only that, it wasn't just his uniqueness in being born of a virgin. It was also that he was the son of God. If he was born of a virgin, then who was his father? If he was born of a virgin, Mary, who was engaged to Joseph but had never known Joseph intimately, then who was his father? And that question is answered throughout Scripture. We know that. But John chapter 1 and the first two verses, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we find out later, just about eight or nine verses later, that the Word became flesh, Jesus. And He dwelt among us. Jesus is God. You heard that? Jesus is God. Let me make another statement that I want us to comprehend. I'm about to give you a quote. God is Jesus. It's not just that Jesus is God. It's that God is Jesus. Everything that God wanted us to know about himself, Jesus. Everything that God, by the way, not to get off on this, tangent, everything that God wants to know about himself, Holy Spirit. He is God. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to like roll through the Trinity this morning. We're about to get there. But D.E. Trueblood said this, this historic Christian doctrine of the deity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It's far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. And that struck me this week. So what's God like? God's like healing the blind man. What's God like? God is like sitting down at a table with Pharisees. What's God like? God is like going to that well and speaking to that woman and exposing her sin but covering it with his grace. What's God like? God's like Jesus. That, was, that, that struck me this week. That struck me this week. We, we try to attribute, we, we, first of all, we divide up the Trinity too much, in my opinion. But we try to like attribute the attributes of God the Father onto the Son. But we need to also understand the reverse. If that be true, then this is also true. God is like Jesus. Essential doctrines. The Bible is infallible and sufficient. The uniqueness and the deity of Jesus. By the way, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot be a Christian. You can't. That is the declaration of our faith. 
is that Jesus is who he said he was. Thirdly, the triune Godhead. I told you we were getting there. A foundational truth. Don't even ask me to clearly explain it to you because I can't. The triune Godhead. The fact that we serve a God this morning who exists holistically as God. And, not or, but and exists in three forms as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Separate, but not separate. Together. Unique, but not really unique. The same. It's very... It's a very difficult thing to explain. I've heard people try to use water. You have ice. You have liquid water. You have condensation. They're all the same thing. I've heard people say it's a rope. It's a, a, a kind of a three-cord rope. It's a rope. But there are three cords that make up that rope. That doesn't really do it justice because all those three chords exist in and among themselves separately, disconnected from one another. That's not the Trinity. I cannot explain to you the Trinity. It's not, it's not a river that parts ways and comes back together. No, because when it parts ways, it's separate from one another, and the triune God is never separate from one another. It is a beautiful, beautiful Difficult conundrum of belief that if any pastor gets up in front of any church and says, I'm going to give you the secret of the truth of the Trinity. No, you're not. <laughs> Sorry. Can't do it. There are probably men who could more eloquently give you illustrations, but every single illustration is going to fall short in some measure. We believe, according to Scripture, in the triune Godhead, it is shown in many areas of the New Testament. I love this one in the Great Commission. Jesus, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus came and spoke to them. And he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Why do we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because what Jesus told us to do. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The last two are very quick. Core foundational doctrines. What are the black and white foundational truths that help us understand Romans 14? And, and the non-essentials. Next. The necessity of the cross. The necessity of the cross. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then his death on the cross is so significant. Unlike any other human death. And salvation is brought through his death on the cross, by grace alone, 
and through faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2. You know these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But you don't understand what I've done, but you don't understand what Jesus did. But you don't understand how bad, but you don't understand how good Jesus is. But you don't understand the sin, but you don't understand my Savior. But you don't understand my past. Well, I may may not, but Jesus has paid for your future. And the cross. I don't need to spend time here, I don't think. But a core doctrine and belief that we must hold as black and white is that the cross matters supremely. And listen, if you don't believe in what Jesus did on Calvary, you cannot, you cannot come to faith in Christ unless you believe what he did on that cross. And then lastly, I put these two together, and I could have put the resurrection in with the previous one. But I did this lastly, the resurrection and second coming of Jesus. The resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. This is life eternal and everlasting for all those redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus said to her in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day. He rose in victory and triumph over The grave over sin, over hell, over death. We don't serve a dead Savior this morning. We serve a living Savior. And John 14 tells us in verse 2, Jesus speaking, that he goes to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming again to this earth. So he didn't just rise and ascend to his father's right hand. He ascended with a plan. And that plan is to one day return and make all things right. This is not a series on heaven. Sometimes heaven can spook people out. I think in our connect groups in the last few weeks, one of that was one of the questions about the afterlife. And I know the afterlife can sometimes, there's so many unknowns. But I do know this, Jesus is preparing a place. And he wants you there, that where I am, there you may be also. So in conclusion this morning, you may be thinking, Josh, well, you didn't hit on this doctrine, fill in the blank. Well, you didn't touch on the timeline of when you think Jesus is going to come. Well, if I may, that's the reason for this study. is to help you and I understand that we're going to show a lot of grace. Did you know that in 
incredibly intelligent theologians have debated the timeline of, of, of Christ's return for hundreds of years. I mean, I hate to break this to you guys. Did you know that if you believe in the, in the rapture, I'm just going, about to blow some of your minds. Did you know that there are a lot of very intelligent theologians who believe the rapture will be after the tribulation? And you probably believe that it was going to be before the tribulation? Did you know like really good men and women that study God's word believe both of those things differently? Notice, that's not one of our essentials today. The timeline of which that happens is not my essential today. The truth of it happening is my essential. Does everyone understand that? Does everyone understand that there, of these doctrines, there are, there are breakoffs of these doctrines that people disagree on? Those are not the ones that we're speaking of today. We are speaking of the overall black and white essential truth. So b- before we jump in over the next couple of weeks to these debatable items, before we jump into these gray areas and how do we deal weaker brother, stronger brother, stumbling block, freedom in Jesus, live for your conscience before God, but also live in a way that doesn't bring reproach to the name of Jesus to others. There's a lot here. Before we get there, we have to understand our foundational beliefs. And they are this, that the Bible is infallible and sufficient, that Jesus was unique, and that he is the Son of God, that God exists as the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the cross was necessary for our salvation, nothing more, nothing less, that the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ are realities. Those are the pillars of our faith. Those are the non-negotiables. Anyone that comes in and preaches in this pulpit or teaches in our connect groups or leads any, these are non-negotiables. The other stuff, we'll talk about. You say, Josh, are there other things that we would deem, practically speaking as a church, as a non-negotiable? Absolutely. There'd be some other things that just... Practically speaking, in order for us to serve together in unity, we would say, hey, this is, but as far as our faith, these are the core doctrines of our faith. The pillars of truth. I ask you this morning, do you understand and believe the core pillars of truth in our faith? Maybe you need to go back and listen to this sermon at home, and maybe you need to take some notes and say, listen, I want to make sure that I believe and I understand and I know these basic core truths of Christianity. We gave just one or two verses of Scripture for each of these. There are plenty more. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, Josh, i got to be honest with you. Just by the way that I'm wired, man, my list was like 20 long. And I feel like everybody needs to agree with me on all of these. I hope today we're able to help us understand that 
if everything's a 10, nothing's a 10. If everything's supreme, nothing is supreme. Core fundamental truths. You want to know why this is important? Let's see. Because John, Alabama, there you go. John was raised, I'm sorry about yesterday. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> oh, here we go. Because <clears throat> John was raised in Alabama in a traditional Baptist church. Okay? I'm going to embarrass her. Rachel was raised in Michigan in the GRC, CRC, there you go. Not a traditional Baptist church. Okay? And you, you know why? You know why I want to preach this? Because John and Rachel attend the same church and love the same Jesus and believe the same Bible and want to serve the same community. And if we're not careful, we're not going to understand how to navigate that. And that's why we want to deal with differences. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at keystonerdu.church. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media and outreach ministries at Keystone, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Durham and around the world.